0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Isaiah this morning, and we are in chapter 49, Isaiah chapter 49. And I've been looking forward to this chapter for a long, long time. There are a couple of things that uh, I've been looking forward to, obviously, Chapter 53 is a big chapter, I've been looking forward to that. Chapter 66 is a big chapter, looking forward to that. But on the way to 53 and 66 is, uh, is 49. And uh, one of the clearest pictures of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament is this one, in you know, Isaiah chapter 49. And, and uh, so we're going to spend some time with it this morning. I'll try to pace myself through the hour so that we don't spend the entire time on uh, verse 7, <laughs> all right? Um, because there are 26 verses to cover, but uh, it is so special to see the uh, definition of our Lord here 700 years before He was born, and yet so accurate in its, uh, in its portrayal. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's bow before Him in silent prayer and ask His blessings upon our time of study today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We are in obedience to your commands, Father. Your word commands us to come boldly before your throne of grace. And here we are, Father. We present ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so, Father, open the eyes of our understanding. Show us from your word what we as workmen are expected to achieve. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We're beginning a new section here in Isaiah. Chapters 49 through 57 form a block within the overall structure of the book. Chapters 49 through 57 highlight a greater Messiah shepherd than Cyrus. We've been dealing with Cyrus in some of these earlier chapters. Cyrus, the king of Persia, was called my shepherd, was called my servant, was even given the uh, Mashiach title as the anointed or as the Christ. Um, but he was simply a shadow. He was a type of Christ, and we understand that in his generation and in in the purpose of God in his generation. But a greater Messiah shepherd than Cyrus is, obviously, the Savior of the world, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we have in this section, from 49 to 57, we have a great picture of Jesus that uh, is is almost as vivid as anything you're going to find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all right? We're going to see Him suffering. We're going to see Him dying on the cross. We're going to see what He does in His first Advent ministry. Now, we've already been introduced to Him in a sense because if you remember back in chapter 7, we've already seen, "...a virgin shall conceive and bear a son." So we've already seen the prophecy as it relates to the virgin birth of the humanity of our Savior. We've seen other glimpses here and there as well. In chapter 11, chapter 9, where he's a king and his name is Wonderful Counselor and he's going to rule the nations. We've seen glimpses here and there. But now we have more than a glimpse. Now we have a complete block of chapters from 49 to 57 where the main emphasis is Jesus Christ himself a greater Messiah shepherd than Cyrus. And so we're looking at the virgin-born Lord Jesus Christ. And so as it starts, listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. And so it's a global message for all humanity. The Lord, Yahweh, called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. He has also made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due me is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God." Verse 5, "'And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, so that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength.'" Verse 6, he says, "'Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel?' I will also make you a light of the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Then verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. All right, I'm going to stop there. I can keep going, but let's take these first seven verses as a unit. Really, the first 13 verses are all uh, a spotlight on, uh, on Jesus himself. But let's start with this and see how far we get. Communion Sunday, I'm always running out of time. But servant Israel has a global message. Let's understand this. Jesus is the faithful servant. And he's been called servant already in Isaiah chapter 42 and other places. Jesus, the Messiah of of Israel, has been called the servant of Jehovah. But here he's called Israel by name. And we're not talking about the nation. We're talking about Jesus Christ himself under the title of Israel. What Jacob and his descendants should have been doing throughout the old, Old Testament. Jesus will come and personally fulfill the title of Israel that is striving with man and with God. And we're going to see the very event, or we could take the time to see the very event in which Jacob is renamed as Israel, wrestling with the Lord all night and praying that that has a fulfillment in Jesus Christ himself. Servant Israel has a global message in verses 1 through 6. And you notice the language here from the islands and the coastlands and peoples from afar. It is a global message to the ends of the earth. He is a light to the nations and he will be a light to the nations. Both is and will be, all right? Both now and not yet. We want to understand this. This is an interesting chapter because it's almost as if it is set in the church age it's almost as if it's set after first advent, but before second advent. Okay. Just by virtue of some of the clues that we have in these verses, uh, as in the case, which we already read where he thought, man, it's been a waste of time. Verse four, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity that Jesus Christ came in his first advent and was rejected by his people. The Jewish nation rejected their Messiah, they rejected their King and their Christ, they crucified Him, they put Him to death, and He rose again and departed. And He could view that in terms of His purpose for Israel as being uh, vain, as being empty, as not accomplishing what ultimately the Father would have for Him to do. And why it is he's coming back a second time. Why he returns in second advent to bring about the kingdom glories and the blessings of what is yet future. And so we have the disappointment that he's expressing there in verse 4. And likewise, the indication that That he is a light of the nations, but he's not yet been made a light to the nations. Uh, In verse 8, I will make you a light of the nations. As something that is still yet future. Same thing in uh, in verse 7. That he is the despised one. The one abhorred by the nation. That's a verse that could be written in the church age. From our perspective, we we relate to that concept uh, ultimately. Who's hated more on earth today more than Jesus Christ in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict that you and I operate in? Not just by people at large, but the Jewish nation has despised him, has rejected him to this day. They say, no, he was not the Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth was not the Christ. The Jewish people deny him to this day. As he is the one abhorred by the nation singular that is israel but but yet kings will see and arise, princes will also bow down, so from a context that would that would be very fitting where you and I are today, we have a prophecy here that relates to messianic fulfillment almost as if. It's in shadow and mystery, of course. The church is not revealed in the Old Testament. But with our hindsight, we can look back to this chapter and say, oh, okay. Some of these clues are compatible with what we know now. Absolutely compatible with what we know now. They wouldn't have known it at the time. And uh, I want to make sure we're clear on that. All right. He is the light to the nations. He will be the light to the nations. And this is clear in many applications. And we can probably save some time here. But Isaiah 42, 6, we've already seen some of these. Remember uh, Isaiah 42, where he's called the servant, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. And uh, in that context, verse 6 says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. And so Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant to the Jewish people, but then a light to the nations. And this is 2nd Advent in its fulfillment. The millennial function of Israel is the light to the nations. 49.6 is our passage this morning. It's going to come back again in chapter 51. In a couple of weeks, we'll get to this in chapter 51. Pay attention to me, O my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light of the peoples. And so the role that Israel is going to have, Jerusalem is will be the place where this light will shine and all the Gentile nations are going to come to Jerusalem. That is where they're going to receive their light. That's where they will receive their knowledge of God. They will depend upon the Jewish people to teach them in the things of the word of God. And these are some of the millennial blessings that Jesus Christ has to look forward to. None of this was fulfilled in first advent. None of this is literally fulfilled in the church age. All right, we have a different light application ourselves. We're not reigning from Jerusalem. We're not influencing the kings and the princes the way that Israel will in the Millennial Kingdom. Chapter 60, arise and shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Sometimes as these verses get put into children's Sunday school songs and so forth, and I think when they do, they get misapplied. It's millennial in its scope and is looking forward to the role of Jesus Christ on His throne in Israel in the coming millennial kingdom. But arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. When He came in first Advent, the light was, was revealed, but they rejected the light. All right, He came to His own, and His own received Him not in uh, John 1.9. But verse 3 of Isaiah 60, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. I just don't see that happening today, (laughs) right? Today we have United Nations meetings and, and Obama goes and makes a speech and Putin makes a speech and Netanyahu makes a speech and they're all speechifying at the United Nations in New York and I don't see any light. I don't see a testimony to Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. Boy, things are going to be different when he's seated on David's throne in Jerusalem. Nations will come to your light. Looking forward to that. All right. Of course, John 1, 9 shows the rejection. He came to his own and those, uh, they, they received him not. The purpose for John the Baptist, he was a forerunner. He came to testify about the light. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man and yet rejected by his own people. He was in the world. The world was made through him. The world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, I love this, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That right there is a a wonderful gospel verse. That right there is a recognition that even though the nation rejected him corporately, individuals can still identify who the Christ is, place their faith in Jesus Christ, and receive eternal life. When you identify that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God, you place your faith in Him, and you become a child of God. It's as simple as that. You don't need to walk an aisle, you don't need to get baptized, you don't need to do any of these other things. You place your faith in Jesus Christ, and according to this verse, you receive Him you become a child of God, even to those who believe in his name. And in so many respects, I don't mind the fact that this world is getting darker. (laughs) Does it bother you? You think, how much worse can it get? How much darker can it get? I kind of don't ask that because I think it's tempting God. But because I think it can get a lot worse, frighteningly so, you know. But as dark as it does get, our light shines brighter. And the more weird we appear as aliens and strangers, um the the I think the sharper distinctions get drawn, and we can proclaim Christ to this lost and dying world and so there it is, also 1 John, uh, the first epistle of john 1 John two eight uh, employs this aspect of the light in uh, in this he says the true uh, on the other hand i 'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Do you know how close we are to that trumpet sounding? I think we are so close to that trumpet sounding because 2,000 years ago the Apostle John said, the darkness is already passing away. The true light is about ready to come. Many Antichrists have already arisen. And that's uh, the circumstance of where we are. Alright. Isaiah forty-nine seven contains several Messianic titles. And I'm going to give you more verses today than we can look at. But you can write them down and spend all this week chewing on them. Isaiah 49 7. What a description. The Savior I love, and yet he's hated by this world. 49 7. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings will see and arise. Princes will bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And boy, I tell you, you could spend a month on this verse right here and never, never exhaust all the details on this. First of all, Redeemer. All right, Redeemer. And when you study redemption, you're in for a, a, a long study, okay? Because it's bigger than just individuals getting saved. That's a personal redemption, Having, uh, being purchased from the slave market of sin and being delivered from the domain of darkness and receiving eternal life. That's your personal redemption. That's my personal redemption. All right? But there's also national applications to be made in terms of redemption, and far more common is, is the national use in the uh, prophecies pertaining to Israel and their coming millennial kingdom. But Redeemer is used 13 times in Isaiah. And uh, we, could, we could spend our whole hour just looking at those verses there. 41-14, 43-14. Understand that the Redeemer is the one who is able to pay and the one who is willing to pay. And able to pay for uh, the, the deliverance of Israel, meaning he must be himself without sin. Okay, All the same requirements to be our personal redeemer are the same requirements for Jesus Christ to be the national redeemer of the Jewish people. He has to redeem Israel as a nation. And he will do so. He absolutely will do so. He's already shed the blood of the covenant that makes that possible. And so the, the title redeemer that's found in Isaiah 41, 14, 43, 14 44, 6 and 24, 47, 4. Last week or two weeks ago in 48, we had it in 48, 17. Today we have it in chapter 49, not only verse 7, but it gets restated in verse 26. It's actually a bit fuller. He is the Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob in verse 26. You see, when he comes to redeem them in second advent, it's not going to be humble and riding on a colt. It's going to be mighty in battle. It's going to be with uh, wrath poured out. With an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, He will redeem Israel as a nation from the four corners of the earth. Chapter 54, verse 5 and verse 8. Chapter 59 and verse 20. Chapter 60 and verse 16. Chapter 63 and verse 16. Pay attention to these uses of Redeemer. All right? Redeemer. Now... Um, we'll just, we won't read all of these. I just want us to get a sample of them. So starting in 41, and it's, it's worthwhile to ask ourselves, when you come across a Redeemer passage, are we talking about individual personal redemption? Or are we talking about corporate national redemption? And I think that's a great place to start right there in terms of rightly dividing the word of truth. So Isaiah 41, 14. Do not fear, you worm, Jacob. Okay, more name-calling. And this comes in the midst of a very long passage of stop fearing, okay? Do not fear, you worm of Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So between Redeemer and Holy One, we're going to find a lot of these are placed in tandem, connected with one another. You can't separate them, all right? He needs the same qualifications to redeem the nation that he needs to redeem you and I personally in our personal salvation. And so as you look at this, is this this, um, a personal salvation verse? In Isaiah 41, 14, are we talking about a, a Jewish unbeliever somewhere that needs to get saved and receive eternal life? Are we talking about the Jewish nation as a people that are going to be redeemed and delivered, saved by their Messiah. Okay, well, that's what we're looking at here, and we'll see this in uh, every one of these Isaiah contexts. Chapter 43 and verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon and will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans into the ships in which they rejoice. So, do you remember back to the day you got saved? Did anything happen to the Chaldeans? <laughs> All right? Understand, these verses are not talking about individual unbelievers that are coming to faith in Christ and receiving eternal life. That's, uh, that's the personal use of redemption. That maybe, um, I'm not saying it's bad to think in those terms, but when we're dealing with the Old Testament prophetic books, we've got to go beyond that. We've got to understand how Yahweh is dealing with Israel corporately as a nation. How he is bringing them under the bonds of the covenant. And that's an entirely separate issue than an individual unbeliever that receives eternal life. All right. Let's go to some of the ones we haven't seen yet. How about chapter 54, verse 5 and verse 8. In Isaiah 54, we'll pick up the context for this in verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. Do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. But you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will, be, you will remember no more. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. And Here is where the kinsman Redeemer goes forth to conquer. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God, for a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. Okay? Got that coming up about five weeks from now. I'm looking forward to that, uh, to that chapter. Um, one more. Let's do 63.16. And I encourage you, take all these, write them down and Spend some time, and you'll notice these are all national redemption. This is all God moving on behalf of his nation, redeeming them and uh, inaugurating the, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Because in chapter 63, he's marching as to war, trodden the wine press. His garments are dipped in blood. And and I want to start singing glory, glory, hallelujah. All right. And in Isaiah 63, you get down to verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. For you are our father, through Abra- though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. Yet you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. And this is what happens. They call out to him finally. It's in fact, this is the condition on which Jesus can come at Second Advent. As for Israel to look upon the Christ whom they crucified, to call upon him for their national salvation, then and only then can he return in Second Advent and redeem his, uh, his people. The Redeemer is also called the Holy One. Okay. Now, we're called holy when we're saved and we're commanded to be holy. The angels are called holy, at least the elect ones, are called holy ones of heaven. But there is only one holy one, and that is God himself. The holy one references God the Son and his close intimacy with God the Father. More often than not, in, in some cases it's, it's not clear whether we're looking at the Father or we're looking at the Son, or we're looking at the Father and the Son together. That's a lot, that a lot of times happens when we have Yahweh in a, in a context. But a lot of times when we have Yahweh on the one hand and the Holy One on the other hand, this is the Old Testament way of showing us God the Father and God the Son. Where Yahweh is the Father and the Holy One, the Kadosh, is, is God the Son. 30 times we have the Holy One used uh, in the book of Isaiah with reference to God Himself. And mo- most of those are with reference to God the Son the second member of Trinity. The Holy One references God the Son in his close intimacy with God the Father. You know, when he told the Pharisees, when he said, I and the Father are one, they picked up stones to stone him. But it should have been obvious. They shouldn't have batted an eye at that. That, that if Had they the, the appropriate sense of, of Isaiah, they would have fallen before their, re, uh, their Redeemer, their Savior, and their God. Again, too many verses to read in one session. Thirty times in Isaiah you have the Holy One. In Isaiah one four, in Isaiah five, nineteen and twenty four. In Isaiah ten, seventeen and twenty. Are you getting cramps yet? You're writing too much with your hands? Some of you get lazy, you just shoot me an email in the afternoon and say, Can you email me that list of verses? And I'm always gracious enough to send you the email. Write faster. No, okay. I grew up under Machine Gun Eichmann, and so I, I uh, from the childhood, from the youngest of ages, I'd go home from Bible class, with was just cramps in my fingers writing so fast, getting all the notes down as I could. Where did I leave off? Chapter 10, verses 17 and 20. Isaiah 12, 6, 17, 7, 29, 19, and 23. Chapter 30, there's three uses there in verse 11 and verse 12 and verse 15 in Isaiah chapter 30, all reference to the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. Chapter 31, 1, 37, 23. Chapter 40 and verse 25. Remember in chapter 40, we're transitioning from the, the first portion of Isaiah to the second portion of Isaiah. 41, three uses there, verse 14, verse 16, and verse 20 forty three three fourteen and fifteen, forty five, eleven, forty seven, four. That's our passage a couple of weeks ago. Forty eight seventeen. Twice that it's used here in forty nine seven. Comes back in fifty four five and fifty-five five, in chapter sixty, verse nine and verse fourteen. And those are all the uses in in uh, isaiah but it's not limited to isaiah in fact we got some powerful uses of this in messianic prophecies he is the holy one psalm 16 10, your holy one will not undergo decay we have a prophecy there of the resurrection of jesus christ that he would die but rise again that god would not suffer his holy one to undergo decay that's psalm 16 and verse 10 it's quoted in the new testament several times Proverbs 9.10, again, the knowledge of the Holy One. Why do we learn Proverbs? Why do we learn the Word of God? Because the more we know of the written Word, the more we're going to know of the living Word, the more we're going to know of Jesus Christ. Three times in the Gospels, the demons cry out, we know who you are. And what do they call him? You are the Holy One of God. The demons had a handle on this title, (laughs) all right? Why did the Pharisees have trouble with it? Why was it that these hyper-legalistic Pharisees, it's not that they were stupid, they were geniuses. They They had gnosis, they had information, but they were not uniting it by faith and they weren't walking by faith in any respect. And so they crucified the Lord of glory, as he's called here, the Holy One of God. So Mark 1.24, Luke 4.34, and John 6.69, in all three of those places, there are demons that are testifying to this glorious title, the Holy One of God, the one in whom he is well pleased, the one who is qualified to make the sacrifice that he's making. None of the rest of us measure up. All right. Let me just grab, I don't want to do all of those, <laughs> we don't have time. To do all of those, but let's go to the ones we haven't seen yet, including fifty-four-five and fifty-five-five. And you'll note well, we already saw fifty-four-five because there's the uh, your redeemer is the holy one of Israel. But we get into fifty-five. I like fifty-five. I can preach the gospel out of fifty-five. Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Use this in, a, in an evangelistic way. Use this to, to uh, talk to folks that are thirsty so they can drink the living water and never thirst again. And let them know that it doesn't cost them anything because Jesus Christ already paid the price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. All right. Anyway, there's, a, there's a, an invitation to come and to listen and to respond by faith. And then the faithful mercy shown to David. Here we have it in verse three. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. So now understand we have both in view here, personal redemption and national redemption. Individual human beings have to respond to a personal gospel message. And then the nation of Israel has to respond to the invitation as Jesus is bringing in the millennial kingdom. Why do you think it was in the first advent that John the Baptist had that message of repentance that he kept preaching? Because if the kingdom of heaven is at hand, those Jews needed to get their spiritual life in order. No unbeliever is going to enter the millennial kingdom. All right, I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David, and that is the son of David, Jesus Christ himself. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which, you, uh, which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you and here's where Jesus Christ comes and establishes his his throne, the throne of David, and the nations will start to come. We'll see that in the second half of our chapter this morning. Chapter 60 verse 9 and verse 14. Again, the rise and shine passage in Isaiah 60. Verse 9 says, Surely the coastlands will wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold, with them. The promises that Israel has. See, right now, Israel is the most hated nation on the planet. They would like those guys gone. The the, the conventional wisdom is, if there weren't Jews in the Middle East, then the Arabs will be happy and we'll have peace in our time. So there's a final solution for you. Let's just get rid of those pesky Jews, and the Muslims will start jihading, and we'll be we'll be great. That's the lie. All right. Well, this is going to be a day. The whole planet is going to bless the Jewish people, transporting them, uh, being plundered by them, providing wealth as they are transported to the land of promise. And so uh, 60 verse 9 says to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Foreigners will build up your walls. Their kings will minister to you. <laughs> you know, I have to laugh. Donald Trump says he's going to build a wall. And he's going to make Mexico pay for it. And I thought that almost sounds prophetic when it comes to Israel because their walls are going to be built, and it's going to be the wealth of the Gentiles is going to pay for it. The wealth of the Gentiles will pay for the uh, building of Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. Anyway, there's the uh, couple of the uses. I encourage you, go find all those uses and see everything in the book of Isaiah as it pertains to the Holy One of Israel. A couple of their New Testament references, by the way, include Acts 3.14. Here's Peter's preaching shortly after the church age begins in Acts 3.14 where he's called the Holy and Righteous One. He says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant, Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when Pilate had decided to release Him. But you, (laughs) I love this, See, Pontius Pilate found him innocent and was going to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. Boy, there's a sermon, <laughs> okay? And Peter was letting him have it. It's also called the Holy One in First 1 Peter 1.15, like the Holy One yourselves. You know, to me, First 1 John 1.15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. To me, the church age has an application that's far more um, significant than Israel's in the Old Testament. Okay? It's one thing for, you know, be holy for I am holy, says the Lord your God. You want to think about the holiness of God and Trinity, the holiness of God just in a generic sense from the Old Testament. But it gets more precise when you consider the Holy One who called you. That is Jesus Himself, who died on the cross, who took our place for our sins. Like the Holy One who called you, be an imitator of Christ. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior then, yeah, go to Leviticus and be holy for I am holy. Okay? It just seems to me that church-age believer priests with a past completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you and I have a a far more vivid perspective to apply these aspects of holiness. And of course, 1 John 2.20, another application related to the Holy One. All right. We have Redeemer, we have Holy One, we have the Despised One. The Despised One. Not only here, but Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53, verses that I like to read during Communion Sunday. And lo, what do we have today? Communion Sunday. All right. Jesus Christ would not win election in, in the American political process as he had no stately former majesty that we should be attracted to him. He was not... Uh, he came humbly. He came and he accepted our sorrows. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. David writes about him in Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8. He says, I, this, is, this is, by the way, David wrote this a thousand years before Christ. But these are the very words of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I believe that the Lord took David and put him in a vision on the cross. That David wrote an eyewitness account of the crucifixion a thousand years ahead of time. That the Spirit took David forward in time and put him in the eyes of Jesus on the cross. And he wrote this first person account that Jesus would then recite word for word while he hung there. On Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Get down to verse 6. He says, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with a lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, because He delights in Him. All of this taunting... All of this taunting. Come down off that cross. If God really loved you, he would rescue you from this. And all of these taunts. And yet, he was despised and rejected. Psalm 69. Maybe not quite as known as Psalm 22, and that's unfortunate. Psalm 69. Verses 7 through 9. Because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Remember, the Jesus' brothers didn't even get saved until after the the resurrection. For zeal for your house has consumed me. Recognize that quote? That was uh, what the disciples remembered when he drove the money changers out of the temple. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. He has accepted the guilt on their behalf. Their reproaches have fallen on him. And then, of course, Isaiah fifty-three three. He, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised, and we did not esteem him. The national rejection of Israel, of their Messiah. So he is the despised one. I don't think we have despised in much of our hymnody. We uh, We need to write some more hymns about the despised one. All right. Abhorred by the nation. Also in Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He got what he deserved. The Jewish people will tell you that to this day. He was a heretic. He was a blasphemer. We put him to death rightly. The Jewish people would tell you that. That he was not the Christ. He was a blasphemer. And the Sanhedrin convicted him and the Romans executed him and they were right to do so. That is official Judaism to this day. He is abhorred by the nation. Well, guess what? They got to change their thinking on that. (laughs) They have to change their thinking on that because he can't come back in second advent until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Jewish people, Israel, as a nation, have to look upon him whom they pierced Then and only then, when they call upon him, will they be saved. They will have their national redemption then and only then. So he is the despised one. He is abhorred by the nation and he is the servant. He came as the servant. And this is what totally blew their minds. (laughs) He came as a servant I don't know why it should have blew their minds. He told them he was coming as a servant. Time and time and time again, verse and verse and verse again, he's called my servant, my faithful one, my Messiah. But the Jewish people, I think it was a stumbling block. <laughs> you know, like it was in the days of Saul, they wanted a king like the nations around them. They wanted a conqueror. They wanted someone that was going to break the bonds of Rome, someone that was going to bring in the kingdom with you know a mighty arm and wrath poured out. But he came born of a virgin, born in a manger. He came humbly. He entered into Jerusalem humble, riding on a colt. He didn't come to uh, destroy Rome, not in his first advent. He came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel to seek and to save that which is lost. The redemption of Israel is what was his purpose in first advent. And they rejected that. Came as a servant. You know, I find it fascinating. Three and a half years after his ministry, he's getting ready to go to the cross. His disciples are all sitting around bickering about which one of them is the greatest. Have you learned nothing in three and a half years of watching this guy? When did he ever promote himself? Have you not been following his example? Have you not been listening to his teaching? And so he gets up from the table and he takes off his clothes and he wraps himself with a towel and he sits down and he begins to wash their feet. Isn't that beautiful? And they're all just dumbfounded. Peter's the only one that speaks up and says no and then gets chewed out for it. Okay? Thank God for Peter, you know? But in chapter 42, he's called the servant. I'm going to look at all of these. Even if I run out of time, I'm going to look at all of these. I haven't even gotten to the motherhood passages yet. The second half of the chapter is dealing with uh, a mother bereaved of her children, getting her children back. But we have Isaiah 42, the servant. Behold, the servant. Why does Yahweh call a servant? Well, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. Are you too proud to be a servant? You're not qualified to be a king. Servanthood trains you to be a king. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, he's called the servant. In chapter 52, he's called the servant. Fifty-two, thirteen. 13, he's called the servant. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Why? Just as were many people astonished, uh, so his appearance was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. What he endured physically, what he endured spiritually, he accepted the wrath of God on our behalf. And because he was humble, he will be exalted. So thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. He's called the servant. 53.11 My servant, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. He comes as a servant. And had he not done so, he wouldn't be qualified to be the king. He would not have redeemed us from our sins, and he would not be qualified to be the Redeemer of Israel. Luke 22, verses 24 through 27. That's where he's addressing these disciples. Luke 22, 24 through 27. And they're all arguing about who's going to be the greatest. There arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. The one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Well, clearly, as far as the world works, I'm reclining at the table, you're serving me, I'm obviously greater than you. That's not how God works. He says, Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Okay? And that's the example. I am among you as the one who serves. And then, of course, Philippians 2, Have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took upon himself the form of what? A bondservant. Being made in the likeness of man, he was obedient even to death on a cross. Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8. It's about service. I'm convinced the the greatest heroes we're going to see at the judgment seat of Christ are totally anonymous in this day and age. We don't know who they are, but they're the anonymous heroes serving, quietly serving, humbly serving, glorifying their Savior in all that they do. And they will be exalted at the proper time. All right, God the Father will answer the prayers of God the Son in a favorable time and a day of salvation forty nine eight. Let's spend a whole month on this. What is the favorable time? What is the day of salvation? And why did he not answer until after Tetulus die? <laughs> okay it says I cry out by day and you do not answer by night, there is none who hears. Yet you are holy. He continues to trust in God. And God does answer. According to Hebrews 5 7, he cried out and he was heard because of his piety. God the Father answers the prayers of God the Son in a favorable time and in a day of salvation. And I love this 49 8 Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time I have answered you. Now it's not always on our calendar. We're, we we want it now. Answer this prayer now. You haven't answered it yet. We stomp our feet. We get all stumpy feet on God, and we say, "Well, why?" Well, it's not favorable. There are purposes yet to be achieved. You haven't learned your lessons yet. Christ has would be diminished in His glory if we answer this too soon. But in a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people, to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages. So much was done on that cross on Friday, April 3rd. Not only redeeming humanity on a personal individual basis, but also preparing for the national redemption of Israel. Saying to those who are bound, go forth. And those who are in darkness, show yourselves. It's his faithfulness that enables him to lead captivity captive. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ on the cross qualifies him to provide freedom and light to those bound in darkness. And from verses 9 through 13, we have here, delivering those from darkness. Saying to those who are bound, go forth, and those who are in darkness, show yourself. All right. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. God is the same thing with us. We go through a testing process. He is proving us. Are we going to be faithful? Are we faithful in little things? Why would He entrust us with big things if we're not going to be faithful in little things? And why would He assign these greater assignments without first preparing us the capacity to deal with those greater assignments? We have to learn as He had to learn. And we learn through what we suffer. He, he equips us to extend comfort to others. How? By being comfort in ourselves, meaning we go through the tough things. Hmm. Oh, there's so much more here. Well, let's talk about babies. We have blue bulletins today. Babies are born. Motherly love. It's the metaphor for two different aspects of Israel's Restoration. When we look at verses 14 through 26, 14 through 26, too bad it's not Mother's Day. This would be a good Mother's Day sermon. Talk about motherly love. Motherly love is the metaphor for two aspects of Israel's restoration. Verses 14 through 26, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. And the Lord has forgotten me. You can imagine, here they are 2,000 years after the the heretic they put on a cross. They're still waiting for their Messiah to show up. (laughs) It might be easy for the Jewish people to think of themselves as forsaken, to go through Hitler's Holocaust and think of themselves as forsaken. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. So he uses the metaphor of a nursing mother. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Okay. Under normal circumstances, typically, usually, the rule of thumb is, more often than not, no. Okay. Normal motherhood instincts, the mother loves her baby. Now, that's normal. Yet... There are terrible things that happen in this world. There are hateful mothers. There are those that kill their children and whatnot. And that's also identified here. Even these may forget. So what is typically, and and when it does happen, it's usually thought of as unthinkable. How could a mom do that? How could any mother do that to her child? We think it's, it's just unthinkable. Well, God uses that metaphor to say this is what's normal, this is what's unthinkable, and guess what I am never ever going to do? Yahweh says, I am faithful to my, to my children. I am faithful to Israel. And so even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. You get somebody's name tattooed on your body somewhere, that, that indicates that you're, you're kind of fond of them. <laughs> right? Um, Anyway, and then to have them inscribed on the palms of your hands. How often do you see your hands? How often do you, does this name come to your remembrance? Your walls are continually before me. Your builders hurry. Your destroyers and devastators will depart from you. See, they're on the way. They're about ready to get started. All right, that's the first metaphor. Yahweh loves Israel more than any mother has ever loved her children. And then, look at what's about to happen. Lift up your eyes and look around. All of them gather together. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord. Not only do I love you as a mother loves her children, but your children are about to start coming home. As I live, declares the Lord. The God who cannot die says, as I live, declares the Lord, you will surely put on all of them as jewels and bind them on as a bride. For your waste and desolate places, your destroyed land, surely now you will be too cramped for the inhabitants. Right? (laughs) The children that left home are coming back home. And you realize, hmm, it's a little crowded here now they've moved back into the house again. How about Every born-again Jew that's ever walked this earth in resurrection glory is coming back to reside within the Abrahamic land grant. How crowded is that going to get? The children of whom you were bereaved will yet uh, say in your, ye- in your ears, this place is too cramped for me. Make room for me that I may live here. I understand that. If you have been bereaved of a child, that means they're dead, they're gone. But they're coming back. And they're going to say, boy, it's kind of cramped around here. And that's going to be music to your ears because your children are alive again. Okay? The Jewish nation is going to be restored, not only as a nation, a modern-day nation on this earth, but a resurrected nation of every Jewish believer ever to to ever live. From Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and on down down the list. All right. And then you will say in your heart, who has begotten these for me since I have been bereaved of my children? They got born again. Yes, they did get born again. That's why you're going to see them again. The global regathering of Israel is described as a bereaved mother who sees her children returning. What a picture. A bereaved mother who sees her children returning. And as they return... As they return, they're gonna plunder. They're gonna they're gonna be the Gentiles are gonna carry them like the UT football players were carrying Coach Strong yesterday. Did you see that? They had they lifted him up, they were bouncing him, he was smiling bigger than anything. And that is how the Gentiles are gonna carry the Jews into the promised land. Verse 22, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations. I will set my standard to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their bosom and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians, their princesses, your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. You talk about plundering. You know, when they left, I, I, we've got to go to communion so I'm out of time here, but when they left Egypt in the Exodus, they plundered the Egyptians. <laughs> after, the, after the ten plagues, after the firstborn, the, the Egyptians were happier than anything for those Jews to just get out of town, go. And they they piled treasure upon treasure upon treasure upon the Jewish people. They plundered Egypt when they left Egypt. You can read that in Exodus 3, Exodus 11, Exodus 12. But all of that is simply a foreshadowing of what's going to happen globally. The Gentile nations are going to be so happy to send the Jewish people to the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. There is a great plundering. Not only here in our passage today, we'll have more of it in chapter 60. We'll have very vivid descriptions of it in chapter 60 verses ten and following all right, well, that was very fast, I know, and too many verses to look up in one hour. I've been looking forward to uh, chapter forty nine for a long long time in any event, we have uh, the Lord's table to take part in today. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this time and your word. It's fun to look forward to the millennial kingdom and father it's uh it's a good reminder. We have a lot of folks that are looking forward to uh, elections next November as if if that was going to solve things, Father. I do pray, even so, come Lord Jesus. I pray the Maranatha prayer that uh, until such time as your Son returns that we would be faithful children of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But Father, when the time comes, and oh that it were today, Father, might uh, your Son descend for us to take us home. Father, uh, we're looking forward to these blessings upon Israel, these blessings upon the whole world. Thank you, Father, for this faithful provision. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.